The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. If you, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to me to you that for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have well it's a joy this morning as we resume our series in Philippians and before we begin it's good to see uh our ability to stand with parents as they dedicate their little ones. Because one of the things that we value here is raising and discipling the next generation to know and love Jesus. And our middle school students and our high school students are away at their retreat, and they'll be joining us at the 11 a.m. service. And it's one of the manifestations of how we want to develop this next generation to love and serve Jesus Would you join me now as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father, we thank you that your word does not return empty, but you send it forth and it waters the soils of our hearts to produce what you intend to produce, godliness and holiness and love for Christ. And so do that this morning. Cause your word to go forth and not return empty for your glory and for our joy. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. There is great pressure today for Christians to conform to the world around us. There is great pressure for Christians to conform to the world around them. I recently heard about a friend of a friend in the medical field, and they were given lots of pride paraphernalia, rainbow buttons and shirts and lanyards that their company encouraged them to wear. And they weren't forcing it upon him yet, but they were asking him to represent and give voice to that particular cause. How do we as Christians respond to the various pressures that we face in work, at school, and in our world? And this pressure has always been present for Christians, even from the very beginning. The disciples of Jesus had to navigate the tension in their world between faith and acceptance within their society. And it's this tension, this pressure to conform to the world around us that Paul writes with this in view this morning in our passage here in Philippians. It's a passage that rings with relevance for us where we're at right now. 
In the time of Paul's writing, the religious fervor surrounding the greatness of Rome was at an all-time high. The intensity of pro-Roman passion would exceed the zealousness of what we see today with MAGA hats or BLM chants. The pressure and strain upon the Philippians was great. They wanted them to conform to the world around them. And Paul experienced this firsthand Philippians. You guys remember when we were preaching through Acts? We got to Acts chapter 16. Paul was in Philippi, and what did they do to him? They dragged him into the town square. They beat him. They threw him into jail because he was preaching something that seemed to go against their Roman culture. And the Philippians at this time are normal disciples, everyday people struggling with discouragement and grumbling and anxiety and division and the temptation to conform to the culture around them. And so we get a word from Paul for our situation this morning. Let me just recap where we're at in our series in Philippians after two weeks off. Thus far, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he's encouraged them. says, I've seen your partnership in the gospel. Thank you for that partnership. He's so appreciative. And then he's prayed for them and he's given thanks for them. And then he's told them about his own personal situation. He says, you know what it's like right now for me in prison. And yet the gospel continues to advance, even though some preach against me in order to spite me. And he says, my, my singular ambition is that the glory of Christ would advance, that the gospel would advance. And now he comes to this section where he turns and he gives them this exhortation. Actually, it's an imperative. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then I think everything else from chapter 2 flows from this central command. And the main point of our passage is this this morning. Be ready as Christians to live and suffer for the gospel as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Be ready to live and suffer for the gospel as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Paul wants the Philippians to let their true heavenly citizenship to inform how they live rather than to conform to the world around them. And my aim this morning is kind of twofold. I want us to be ready and able to withstand the pressures that are present and the pressures that will increase and come. I want us to walk out of here this morning with an ever-increasing courage to stand up for Jesus in whatever settings we need to stand up for him. So our plan this morning is to look at this passage in two movements. I want to ask two main questions. How are we to live? And then why are we to live that way? How are we to live? And then why are we to live that way? So how are we to live? Paul has just said in verses 25 and 26 that his desire is to come and see the Philippians. And then he writes in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. Notice that Paul begins with the word only there or alone. 
This could be paraphrased as just this one thing. Paul wants the Philippians to see that if there's anything that you get out of this letter, this is the one thing I want you to see. And it's this. I want you to walk in a manner worthy. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, which we've seen already, is at the heart of everything Paul is all about. Whether I live or die, as long as Christ is honored, as long as the gospel advances, even if I'm in jail, as long as the gospel advances. And now he says, for you Philippians, the one thing I want you to see, the one thing I want you to do is to live your life in alignment with this singular reality. Only see this one thing. This is an all-encompassing command for life. Now, next, notice in your Bible in verse 27, if you have uh, maybe an ESV Bible, you'll notice that there's a little footnote at worthy, where it says, only let your manner of life be worthy. And then the little footnote there says, only behave as citizens worthy. So it could be translated, only let your manner of life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This verb is where we get the noun polis or city. It's where we get the word politics or police. It's very similar to another noun in Philippians 3.20 that's translated citizenship. So it means be citizens of or carry out and discharge your obligations as citizens And Paul uses this word because for the Philippians, Roman citizenship as a colony of Rome was a big deal. Now, what privileges did Roman citizenship give? We can look back again to Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were thrown in jail in Philippi. They were beaten, they were arrested, and then they sought to let them go. And Paul says this. He says, this is Acts 16 37. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and they do and do they now come throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. So you can see in Paul there's this sense of you guys didn't handle this rightly because we're Roman citizens. We have certain rights, we have certain privileges and you shouldn't have beaten us and thrown us in jail and so you need to come. And so those authorities do, in fact, come and they apologize to Paul because Roman citizenship was a big deal. It came with various rights and privileges, like you could appeal after a trial. You would be exempt from military service. And Paul is using this understanding of Roman citizenship to appeal to the Philippians to live as heavenly citizens. He's saying to them, Before your Roman citizenship, I want you to know and remember that we are primarily citizens of heaven. That's where we get our identity. That's where we get our marching orders. That's where we get our values, our priorities, is through our heavenly citizenship. In the same way that Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, the church is a colony of heaven here on earth. So live as those whose identity is rooted and grounded in the very gospel of Jesus. This heavenly citizenship comes with rights and privileges as well, which he talks about later in chapter 2. So I think the idea here is Paul is talking about all of the Christians in Philippi having dual citizenship. 
You're, you're citizens of Rome, but you're also primarily citizens of heaven. So live worthy of that heavenly citizenship. Don't get this backwards. You're first a citizen of heaven, a child of God, and that takes precedent and priority over how you live. This morning, I wonder how many of us go through life thinking about our heavenly citizenship. My guess is most of us go through life without even thinking about our American citizenship. Only when you travel and you have to pull out that little blue American passport that says the United States of America on it, and and then we hand that to the agent, we we think, oh yes, good thing, I can still get back in because I hold this little booklet. How many of us walk through life remembering that even before we hold that little blue book, we hold a heavenly book. We have heavenly citizenship. In our voting, which is coming up, do we vote with the priorities and the values of Christ's kingdom? What guides our politics, a particular party or the priorities of the gospel of Jesus? Where are our allegiances? In Philippi, the gospel was seen as subversive. And yet they continued their allegiance to Christ and his kingdom because they took their marching orders from their heavenly citizenship, not from their Roman citizenship. How are we to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel? Well, notice how the gospel, again, is central for Paul here. What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? Jesus teaches us, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field because he's treating that kingdom reality as the treasure that it is. He's treating it in a worthy manner. And that's what Paul wants us to do this morning. Treat the gospel in a manner worthy. Live in light of this gospel. Live in such a way that aligns with and treats it as it truly is. And now we come to the second question. Why are we to live that way? And what we see in the rest of our passage is three results of living as heavenly citizens. Paul writes in verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So do you see the three things? First, we get standing firm in one spirit. We get striving for the faith of the gospel and being fearless of our opposition. And we get sort of three different types of results, don't we? We see defensive results, standing firm. And then we get offensive, striving forward, side by side. And then we get an attitude or a mindset of being fearless. So the first one, stand firm in the spirit. This result is defensive. When persecution and suffering and opposition come, we're not to let it knock us over or knock us down. Standing firm is this work of the Spirit. I think he's talking about the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit when he says that there. 
Standing firm in one spirit. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but rather let God's work through the Holy Spirit empower you so that you're able to stand when persecution and suffering come. And that we would even be united with fellow believers in that one spirit. Paul's using this example of stand firm is imagery from a soldier in battle who must not retreat. Paul says being a citizen of heaven Worthy of the gospel means that we don't minimize or downplay or soften the gospel of Jesus. He picks this theme back up in chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 1, where he says, Stand firm thus in the Lord, which I think again confirms that he's saying, Stand firm in the Holy Spirit. And so living as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel, results, ought to result for us in perseverance and steadfastness in the face of trials. Why? Why? Why should we stand fast? Why should we stand firm? It's because our primary identity and destiny is not defined by our present circumstances, but is in fact defined by our heavenly citizenship. So when the world maligns us, what are we to think? When someone says to you, you're so intolerant. I can't believe you believe in this book. I can't believe you take seriously the things that were written 2,000 plus years ago. Are you really that backwards? And regardless of what you say, what goes through your mind afterwards? Do you think, I guess it is a little bit backwards. Or do you say, I'm a child of the living God. These are the very words of life. What runs through our minds at that moment? When the world maligns us, Jesus calls us his beloved children. When the world says we're on the wrong side of history, we're intolerant or closed-minded or backwards, we're empowered by the Spirit of Jesus to stand up for him. Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so the challenge for us comes when the pronoun police or the pride police or the latest manifestation of our crooked and twisted generation rolls around, what do we do? Philippians 1 tells us, stand firm by the Spirit of God. The very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit that fills our hearts, gives us strength, resources, so that we can stand firm for Jesus. When we're tempted to compromise biblical truth, when it's unpopular or unwelcomed, what do we do? Are we tempted to capitulate to the demands of our world? And this is so rampant in our world today. There are churches who will abandon biblical teaching on very clear and straightforward things in the name of love and tolerance and acceptance. And the pressure is only growing in all of the different fronts to say, Christians, change so that you can fit in with the culture around you. 
Stop holding on to those backward beliefs. Stop saying what you're saying. Stop refusing to do what the rest of us are doing. And what will we do? Do we make provision for evil because it's become so widespread and accepted? Paul tells us that we only bow to God and not Caesar. We stand firm by the infinite resources that we have in the very spirit of God. We should not, we ought not apologize for biblical teaching or biblical morality, or biblical truth. We must not capitulate to the demands of our age. Now, he goes to the second result in the second half of verse 27, which is strive side by side for the gospel. He says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, he's using military imagery of soldiers being shoulder to shoulder, going into battle, and no one's retreating. That we're to be side by side, striving forward in one spirit, and now again in one mind. We're to be united in fighting against a common enemy as fellow citizens. Now, What Paul is doing is he's contrasting this with things that he's already talked about and things he will talk about. Remember earlier he said there are some who preach Christ out of what? Envy and rivalry. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. And he says, why are they doing that? We're on the same team. We're both preaching the gospel. We're supposed to be of one mind striving shoulder to shoulder. Why are they trying to attack me? And then he actually uses this same exact phrase side by side in talking about Judea and Syntyche in chapter 4, where he says, these two women can't agree, but they labored side by side with me, and now they're fighting against each other when they should be shoulder to shoulder fighting together for the advance of the gospel. The idea here is that we're on the same team striving forward for the proclamation of for the exaltation of Christ, for the proclamation of the gospel. And so one question for us this morning is, do we see fellow gospel laborers as teammates or enemies? Do we see other true believers as allies? Or are we too busy attacking fellow believers, shooting and being hit by friendly fire? Paul's concern is for the advance of the gospel. He wants them to be unified together in that gospel. Even when people are trying to spite him in their preaching. And today, for us, on the cusp of potentially voting to become three separate churches, we need all the more to recover this unity that is forged by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I know we have different instincts on all sorts of stuff. Foreign policy, nationalism, how to address poverty, injustice, criminal reform, COVID, vaccines. Every single one of these things pulls at us to say, you're not my friend anymore because you think differently than me. But do we work hard to maintain the unity and the peace that we have with one another in the shared mission of the gospel? 
I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but they do not unseat the importance of the gospel for those who call themselves citizens of heaven. What's the main thing? And are we striving together in that main thing? The phrase here, faith of the gospel, shows us where we have this battle. We don't fight a physical war against an earthly enemy, but we labor for the spread and advance of the gospel. Our primary concern is with the proclamation of Jesus to the very ends of the earth. So this morning, do we seek out ways to be united with fellow believers in the advance of the gospel? Or are we some of those people who constantly have criticism of others? Uh, Are we looking for ways to criticize and question and divide over secondary concerns? Are we living as citizens of this heavenly kingdom that sees everybody else who are fellow citizens and says, come, lock arms with me. We're running this race together in one mind, in one spirit, so that we can advance this gospel in the midst of a hostile world. The third result is to be fearless of our opposition. Look with me at verse 28. He says, I want you to do these things. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that I may hear that you're standing firm. And then verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So we've seen defensive Maneuvers, we've seen offensive maneuvers, and now he's talking about the mindset, the attitude that is to pervade Christians. The idea is here, the idea here is don't be intimidated, don't be scared, don't be afraid, don't be terrified by those who oppose you. The the word that's used for frightened is it's the only time that it's used here in the New Testament, but it's used in Greek literature actually to refer to a horse that's in battle that gets agitated. And you've all seen that before, probably in the movies, right? Someone's, uh, a rider is riding a horse, going into battle, and the horse gets spooked by something. And then it tosses its rider and runs off. And he's saying, don't be like that. Don't get spooked. Going into battle. Living as a citizen of heaven means we let the realities of heaven inform our hearts and minds so that we're not intimidated. We're not surprised. We're not frightened. And Paul's talking about the Roman opposition that he's experiencing and now that the Philippians are experiencing. And I just want us to notice one thing. Throughout this entire section, Paul doesn't ask the Philippians to do anything he himself is not willing to do and that he hasn't already done. Do you see that? He says, I want your life to be worthy of the gospel. And and Paul's just said, whether by life or by death, as long as Christ is honored, as long as Christ is proclaimed. And then he says, I want to see you standing firm in one spirit. And what's Paul doing? He's rejoicing in prison. He's standing firm. And then he says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What's Paul doing? He's writing to the Philippians and says, I hope to come and see you so that I can advance your faith and progress in the faith. And then he says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. And what's Paul doing? He's totally unafraid. He says, bring another soldier. I'll evangelize him too. Be fearless in the face of persecution. Paul is saying, imitate me 
as I imitate Christ. And this morning, not only as living as citizens of heaven, who around us are we saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ in carrying these things out? Because we all affect one another. Just like in an army, if one soldier gets spooked and they run off, everyone else around him is like, oh, wait, what? why is he leaving? Should I go too? And then all of a sudden you have a little hole. And so they say, hold the ranks, hold the line. Someone, no one needs to run off at this point because we're all in it together. And so who are we saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ? How you respond to the things around you don't just impact you, but they impact those around you. Paul says that this behavior of being unfrightened, fearless, serves as a sign. Verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. How does that work? How does fearlessness in the face of persecution, in the midst of a spiritual battle, tell others about their destruction and of our salvation? I think it does this. It shows the world that our hope is not in this life. It shows the world that our hope is not in this life. So when they say to Paul, you better stop preaching or we're going to kill you. And he says, do what you must. That's not of any concern to me. That's the least of my concerns. I'm going to keep preaching. Do whatever you need to do. And they think, something's something's wrong with that guy. Let me try to illustrate it this way. If you have a football game, a professional football game, and there's a receiver who catches the ball right across the middle, right? That's the most dangerous place to catch a ball. And you get this big hulking linebacker that just smacks right into him and just clobbers him. What does that receiver do sometimes? He pops up like nothing happens. He makes that little first down motion, right? And what is he trying to say in that moment? He's saying, is that all you got? If that's your biggest hit, I'm totally unfazed. We got the first down, and that's a sign of our impending victory and of your impending destruction, your loss. He says, that's all you got? And that's what Paul is saying here. That when we get persecuted, when we experience suffering, when we face opposition, we are not to be afraid, but rather empowered by the Spirit to make us fearless so that it communicates to the world around us that we are being saved and that their destruction is imminent. Now look with me at verses 29 and 30. He draws out a fourth thing here. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This word granted means to give freely, to give graciously. And so we don't often think of suffering as being a gift. And that's precisely what Paul is saying. He's saying that suffering with Jesus is a gift that reveals our union with Christ. Suffering with Jesus is a gift from God that confirms that we are truly in union with God. In Acts 5.41, 
What did the disciples do after they were persecuted? They said they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Or 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Citizens of heaven will suffer with Jesus. We are given the grace or the gift of salvation and of suffering. And this is not a sign of God's neglect of us, but rather that we are actually called by his name, that we are legitimate children of God. And so this is why the main point of this whole section is to be ready to live, standing firm, striving forward, totally fearless, be ready to live and suffer for the gospel as citizens of Christ's kingdom. And so this morning, when we're maligned or looked down upon for our allegiance to Jesus, do we see it as a gift and a grace from God? God will give us all that we need for salvation and life and godliness to endure suffering. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And so this is a reminder that citizenship worthy of the gospel includes suffering with and for Jesus. And I think this is important for us to to get right. We're sometimes tempted to think here in the American church that if we have big houses, good jobs, big bank accounts, prosperous stuff, good families, you know, like on the Christmas card where everyone looks like they're, they're all well put together, wearing matching clothes, that if we have enough of that, then a watching world will say, boy, you Christians really got your stuff together. I want what you have. And there's a little bit of that. Proverbs does talk about living a wise life according to God's commands reaps its own reward. And yet, there is this reality that persecution, walking through suffering by faith, will reveal that our hope is not in those things, but our hope is in God. Our hope is in our heavenly citizenship. That our life here on earth is wasting away and what we're really living for awaits us in heaven. Paul concludes with this brief word in verse 30. He says that you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What is he saying there? He's drawing out the very reality that you Philippians, we're in the, the same boat together. We're, we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You guys are experiencing persecution and suffering from Romans. I'm in jail because of the Romans. We're both in the same boat. God has given grace for you to endure the suffering. God has given grace to me to endure the suffering. Don't di- get discouraged. Don't think you're the only one. We're in it together. Don't lose heart. So the main point of our passage this morning that we need to see and understand and and come to a clearer recognition of is that we are to be ready to live and suffer for the gospel as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Do we think primarily in that way? 
before we're Americans, before we're Minnesotans, before you think of whatever city you live in, do we think of ourselves as citizens of heaven? That our identity, our behavior, our priorities, our values are shaped by that allegiance and citizenship. So for some this morning, do you have a citizenship and hope beyond this life? What is your hope in life and in death? What would you point to? If you were like Paul, where he writes only, just this one thing, what would be that one thing you're living for? And then wrestle with this question. Is it worth it? Is it pleasure? Is it riches? Is it comfort? If you're living for one thing, what is that one thing? And does it hold water? Is it worth it? Is it worth giving 60, 70, 80, 90 years to pursue that one thing and then to die? Is it worth giving your life in pursuit of that thing? This morning, Jesus calls you to consider and to receive the one thing that is worthy of our life and our death, the gospel of Jesus. For others this morning, do we think of ourselves as citizens of heaven? Do you primarily coast through life without a second thought to how you conduct yourself at school and work and in the community? Do you let your manner of life as a citizen of heaven shape how you live? Are you living worthy of the gospel of Jesus? Because if you're not, when pressures come to conform, you're just going to fall over. You're just going to give in. And as Christians, we have to have this heavenly mindset so that we will not conform. We will not give in. But we will stand firm for biblical truth, for Christ, and for his gospel. So when someone at work says, what'd you do this weekend? Do you tell them about everything else you did except go to church? Because, you know, if you bring that up, then they might ask you more questions. Or do you say, you know, I went to church and, and we talked about these really important things. And, and do you mind if I share them with you? And if they say yes, that you say, well, this is what we looked at. And this is what we talked about. And what, what are we ultimately living for? And, and we really believe that what God says is that we, we have a hope that's beyond this life. And that really gives me comfort in this life. And do, do you have those thoughts about what the future holds after death? And what do you think you're living for? Are we living lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus? Are we standing firm, striving forward, and fearless in the face of fear? And still for others, are you with one mind, striving side by side for the advance of the gospel with fellow believers? We do this together. We do this as a church. We do this with one another, all united in this work. Are we shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? Are we willing to engage in conflict and suffering for the sake of making Christ known? Are we frightened by our enemies and opponents at work in the world? Sometimes, you know, Christians can read the news and just lament the world 
around us and think, oh, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, what, what's going on in the world? This is not the 1950s or 60s or whatever time you grew up in. You know, this, this world just looks so different than the world I grew up in. And yet we should be totally unafraid, unintimidated, not frightened by anything going on in our world. Why? Because our citizenship, our hope lies not in this world, but our citizenship lies in heaven where we will be destined to be with Jesus forever. And even right now, he sends his spirit to empower each and every single one of us to unite us so that we can lock arms together and say, whatever the world throws at us, whatever is at work in our world, we're ready to stand firm for Jesus because we know They can take our lives, but they can't take our faith in Jesus. They can kill us, but they can't stop the church. God will continue to raise up more to advance this gospel, and even the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. The gospel continues to go forth. And so that's our hope this morning, brothers and sisters. Are we ready and willing and able to live and suffer for the gospel of Jesus as citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom. Oh, may that be true of us this morning and every day from here. Let's pray. Father, we long for these truths to take root in our souls and then sprout forth fruit the fruit of fearlessness, the fruit of steadfastness, the fruit of striving forward for the faith of the gospel and that others would see it and that we would be testimonies of the glory and of the good news of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.